This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. James Brian Smith. He's the director of R- Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation at Friends University. He is the author of several books, including The Good and Beautiful God. Jim, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'm excited for our conversation. So um, I guess the first question is, what's uh, pandemic life been in, in Wichita, Kansas? Well, I, you know, I think probably like um, a lot of places, it's, it's been uh, a crazy time of, of not much social interaction and um, slowing down and, and space for things. Some of that's great, some of it's not. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a wild time. How about you? 
uh, wide open. Uh, there's never a dull <laughs> moment to say, say the least. You also yeah. <laughs> serve as a, a teaching pastor at a United Methodist Church. So what's your experience right. been like as a local church minister? Yeah, well, we've been online um, since March, and that's just, that's an odd experience to, to you know, do a worship service online and um, and do it in pieces because we don't, we don't even all do it together. So you sort of come in and re- record your part of the service, and so you literally see no one. And some people have asked me, what's it like preaching to an empty congregation, to, you know, empty pews? And it's not been that weird for me, Andy, because I do a podcast. And so I, I'm, I'm used to speaking to no one. So it's not, it's not as crazy for me as it might be for other people. So, but it, it's, it, we're, we're eager to get back. And I, I'm hoping that sometime, you know, uh, we're looking at potentially Easter, uh, finally being back in, in person in some form. As I said in the opener, uh, you're the director of Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. Uh, tell us about your work. Yeah, well, I'm a college professor. I mean, so what my my day job when I tell people is, is that I've been a college professor for 30 years, and um, so that is what I what I do. <coughs> Excuse me, I have to edit that out, huh? Um, so you know, being a college professor is my my primary job, which I love. I dearly love being in the classroom with undergraduate and graduate students. It's just fantastic. But uh, in 2010, we started the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation, and that came as um, some books I had written, uh, we kind of called the Good and Beautiful series, the Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life, and the Good and Beautiful Community. Those books came out in 2009, 2010, 2011, and um, were used in many churches as a kind of curriculum. And, and so we, we established the Apprentice Institute. Uh, Apprentice comes from... Dallas Willard's insistence that we need to um, either either really redeem the word disciple or use a word that's maybe a little more accurate, which is an apprentice. An apprentice of Jesus is someone who is with a master to learn to do what the master knows and does. And so Jesus is the the king of the kingdom, the master of, well, the universe, but uh, certainly our, our Christian life. And so the idea is that I want to live as an apprentice of Jesus. So we started this, and um, we do an annual conference called the Apprentice Gathering, and have a podcast, which I mentioned called the Things Above Podcast, and um, we do several events and create resources for individuals and churches who want to live a vibrant Christian life. So I've been doing that for for the last decade, and it's been really exciting to to do that as well. Small side note, uh, you know, word of affirmation to you on one of those books you wrote a decade ago that maybe you didn't realize. Uh, your book, uh, Good and Beautiful Community, was a formational book for uh, a church start that I pastored for for eight years. We uh, read oh, your wow. book along with many other books as we were contemplating uh, the concept of what does authentic community look like within uh, a, a church and, and, and kind of establishing a church start around the the concept of, of living life well together. So uh, it was a book that I purchased for each person in our core leadership team. Um, and uh, it was one that we certainly enjoyed uh, digging in together and having many conversations about. Well, thank you for buying all those copies. I owe you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, community, community is really hard, isn't it, Andy? I mean, you know that it's, it's a real challenge. Uh, this, this thing about being human beings, right? All being working together and, and, 
the challenges that come just trying to to live a Christ-like life within the context of community is super challenging. That book was, I, I wrote that book within the context of a community. We journeyed together for a couple of years and um, I learned so much from the people in that. So that, of all the books I've written, that was probably the most uh, influenced by an actual community as we really shared our, our, our past struggles with communities that didn't do it so well and, and times the communities really did reflect Christ and do it well. And so, but thanks for that. That's, that means a lot. Yeah. Well, it's, it's continued to be a resource. It's on my research resource list, the, the semester for my doctoral program, doing a doctorate in leadership and looking at uh, the dynamics of relationships within an organization as they uh, work around change. So um, it's mm. going to be a refresher course as I, dig into that among many other books, looking at the concept of, of oh, wow. So, Well, thanks so, for your work on that. That's important stuff. Yeah. So you have, uh, I would say a new book out, but it's a, a revised version of a book, uh, Room of Marvels. Um, this book is a personal story of your theological journey through unbelievable tragedy and loss. And I think to kind of help set the backdrop uh, for this book, I wonder if you'll, you'll tell us about your daughter as uh, you know, she was one of, of the many people that you experienced tragedy with um, that helped formulate this book years later. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's the core story um, that is a, uh, central to the, to the book, Room of Marvels, is, um, is our daughter, Madeline. So our, our first son, Jacob, was born and um, everything was normal, right, healthy, he was growing and developing wonderfully and everything. So we had no, you know, concern about uh, a problem when my wife was, was pregnant with our second child. We knew it was a girl and um, we knew that from a sonogram. And so we were excited. We had a little boy, Jacob, and who was four at the time. And then this, this little girl on the way, and we were really excited. Uh, but in the, in the, final you know six seven weeks of the of pregnancy the doctors were really concerned at a, at a checkup and did some sonograms and discovered that there was some sort of abnormality something wrong with this little girl and um, and we had chosen the name madeline which we we loved that name before she was born and um but as they did more testing they they realized that there was probably some kind of chromosomal disorder it could have been a trisomy issue uh, for listeners that might know about some of those chromosomal issues. And, but, but we were given really dire news. Like they did not think that she would live beyond the birth. There was a real concern that she might not survive birth itself. Um, she did survive the birth. She ended up having uh, what's called a chromosomal translocation. Uh, two of her chromosomes, pieces of two chromosomes had switched and developmentally that would create a lot of challenges with her physically in terms of developing down the midline. And as you can tell with what I've said so far, I learned a lot about science and biology and medicine in, in her lifetime. But so, but she did live and, and um, it was a, it was a rough go because she had so much struggle developing and growing and eventually she died. Uh, she did sur survive well beyond the doctor's prognoses. Uh, in that she, she, no doctors thought she might would live past the age of two, but she did, and uh, but she did die, and um, her loss was really devastating to my wife and I, and it just it happened to come um, 
on the heels of two other great losses, my mother and, and a dear friend. So it was, it was, uh, it was a lot to take in. And that, that was kind of the, the backstory. Um, but Madeline was a, a, a huge part of our life and journey and still is. And she's forever my daughter. And uh, now she rules and reigns in heaven and I'll see her again. But, but certainly the, the loss and the grief was, was devastating for us. You know, I'll have to admit when I, when your book came across my desk for the possibility of, of being on the podcast, I read the premise and, and then I put it down, determined not to do this interview. And, and the reason is that I Thanks have- Thanks a lot, two... Andy. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason is I have two little girls and I mm. didn't even want to imagine myself going through what you went through. Um, it's one thing to experience this kind of pain and it's another thing to write about it. So why did you write about this difficult journey? Yeah, well, I never intended to. And so, well, two, two other significant losses. One, and some of the listeners may know Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins is a singer-songwriter, Christian, uh, awesome God. Maybe people will know that song or Step by Step or Hold Me Jesus, some of his songs. And Rich was a dear friend. He actually lived with us for two and a half years in an attic apartment with our family. And he and I were just sort of soul friends, really close. And he died in, in a car accident in the fall of 97. And uh, in fact, he was on his way back to Wichita, where I lived when he was when he was killed. And so that really was sent me in a tailspin because I never had someone. I had some relatives that were older that had died, but nothing, not a younger person, certainly a really close friend had died. And um, so he died in fall of 97. Uh, Madeline died in the spring of 98, and then my mother died in the, in the winter of 2001. So the, those three deaths, I just didn't recover, frankly. And I don't know you anyone recovers, right? You, there's some healing, to be sure. But, um, but it was still, I had not processed a lot. And so one afternoon, uh, I, 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 I came home to, to journal to be, have a time of prayer. And as I was just sort of sketching along in my journal, uh, it was as if I saw a place in my mind, kind of like closing your eyes and being in a movie. And I started just writing what I was seeing in this this scene. And there was this feeling of peace that came over me, um, this serenity or tranquility. And all I knew was that I just wanted to keep doing it. And so the next day I came back and close my eyes and started writing again and uh, frankly it was pretty selfish because I, I was just doing it because it gave me peace and but eventually I started going I think I'm writing about a place this is this is an actual place I'm writing about I don't and 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 then little by little it unfolded that I was I was writing about heaven like I was writing a description of heaven and then it occurred to me am I Am I going to see people? Like, am I going to encounter people? And little by little, I started to do that. So the thing that was strange, Andy, is I was writing this every afternoon, come home from work, and I would sit and I would do this for an hour or so, and I didn't tell anybody. So for about six months, I was just sketching in my journal this sort of like a movie was happening in my mind, and I was just writing the screenplay as it was unfolding. And... Um, eventually I got to a point where 
uh, I, I, the, I started really seeing the characters, you know, based on people I'd lost and having these conversations. And it was super healing and cathartic for me. And so when I was done, I felt this incredible release that, that I had experienced a, a great healing from the writing process. But I had no intention. I'm not a fiction writer. I didn't, I didn't have any intention of doing anything with it. But eventually I told my wife, hey, this is what I've been doing. And it's really weird. And you're going to think it's strange. But uh, would you want to see it? And so she read it. And I wrote it by hand. And she started reading through it. And she said, I think this is really profound. I'd like you to really, I mean, type this up because my handwriting is terrible. <laughs> so I, I, I went back and typed it up. <clears throat> and she was really, she loved the story so much. And then uh, I thought, well, my dad was alive at the time. And I thought maybe he might enjoy reading it as well or not. And, but he read it and he really was moved by it. And so I thought, wow, I don't know what to do with this now. So, but I knew that these are my family. So they're going to say, you know, this is helpful or not. I mean, they're going to be kind. So, but I had an agent, literary agent, and I just called her up and I said, I've written this thing and it may be just, just for me and for no other eyes to ever see it. But uh, how about if I share it with you? She said, yeah. And so I sent it to her and she read it, I think within a day. And called me back and said, I think this will be really helpful for a lot of people to deal with grief and loss. So that's the process. It was kind of strange. I never intended to write the book. I wrote it for myself. And um, and then in the end, it ended up becoming a book that um, it was published originally in 2004. And it had a good life. It was doing fine. But um, University Press that's published mo most of my books, I think seven of my uh, more recent books they've published. And they said, well, we'd love to publish, we'd love to get, you know, the rights to Marvel someday and, and republish it. And so we were able to do that. And so now it's got a new life. That's how that came to me. Are you interested in theological education, but not ready or able to commit to a full Master of Divinity degree? BSK now offers two certificates that focus on general ministry training. The Exploring Ministry Certificates, Levels 1 and 2, will be available beginning this fall, including course options such as Introduction to Pastoral Care, The Black Church in America, and an Invitation to Christian Theology. These certificates provide options for your area of interest. BSK certificates only require students to take three courses, and the certificates count towards the Master of Divinity. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about these certificates, visit bsk.edu. In the book, you talk about um, about suicide and pain, you know, felt by loved ones in, in the aftermath. Kind of, uh, you know, I wonder, kind of, at a point in your life, kind of your understanding and theology of suicide, and you know how that how that's changed over the years and. And then we could talk a little bit about how the church does spiritual formation around this concept. Yeah, that, and that's an interesting one. Um, in the in the time that my father, after my mother passed away, my dad came and lived with us the last few years of his life. And one of the things he wanted to do was, as many people do, especially now with 23andMe and Ancestry.com, he wanted to kind of dig into our, our family. Uh, story, our, our genealogy. And so he traveled back to Indiana, which is where he was born, 
And um, the roots of on one side of my family, on his side, uh, were Quakers. And some people may not know this, but the Quakers are, are second only to the Mormons in terms of having a real strong interest in genealogy. And so the, the Quakers have kept a real strong record of their, of their ancestry. And uh, so, but my dad went back to Earlham College in Indiana, and he spent some time doing genealogy research. Well, this is early 2000, so it was before all the stuff we have now. But one of the things that he discovered um, was really tragic, and that is that there were, that his great-grandmother, or excuse me, his grandmother, my great-grandmother, his grandmother uh, actually committed suicide, and um, and he was able to get newspaper clippings uh, at the time that it happened. She was fairly well known. Her the family she was from was a prominent uh, Quaker family in Richmond back in the day. Her father was a was a somewhat famous painter actually, and so the story was kind of a big deal made in the newspapers. And so he brought back these clippings and. Uh, so I read through these, the stories and had some pictures of her, who was my great grandmother. And it turned out that one of the things that that may have caused her own suicide was that she had a child who was born with what we think was epilepsy, because you know they didn't have great a great grasp medically back then. Um, and so um, no one was really quite sure what it was, but it seems like it might have been, but. For those who knew her, I guess she was incredibly distraught about this and really felt like she was unfit to parent um, this. And so when I'm writing the book that, as I said, was kind of like a movie happening in my mind, uh, I was absolutely shocked when she showed up, you know, in heaven. And, um, and I ended up having a dialogue with her that was quite profound and connected to me and my own daughter who was born with special needs. So, but you know, and I, well, I think maybe the reason you're asking it, Andy, and it's a good reason, is that the Christians have had a, uh, a long history of, of being really un, uncertain what happens to people who commit suicide. Like uh, a long teaching was, uh, standing teaching in the church was that, that you couldn't go to heaven if you committed suicide, that you committed a, a mortal sin. Um, and so I wrestled with that. But, you know, I'm a big believer in grace and that God is bigger than our sins. and so I felt that there was room for her in heaven, and I certainly had a profound encounter with her in the writing of the book. So, um, but it was, I, I was a little concerned that the publisher may not want to, may want to not have that scene in the book, that chapter, but they ended up not having a real problem with it, which I thought was refreshing in any way. I mean, part of the reason I ask is, um, you know, of course, throughout this pandemic, uh, depression rates have soared. Um, a lot of people, you know, finding themselves in a place where uh, they feel like they need to take their own life. And right. I think to a certain certain degree, um, I've either served in a congregation or been a part of congregations that, A, uh, just didn't talk about suicide uh, or mental health uh, at that, let alone have a healthy uh, theology about it. So, you know, so I wonder as a theologian, why do you think that is, you know, why do you think, um, you know, that aspect of, of grief and mental health and uh, the act of one taking their own life uh, is such a untouched area by the church? 
Yeah, I, I think it fits under the category of many things that it, within the church, we just simply didn't have a great grasp on mental health. Um, it's really been only in the last 50 years, I think, that we've began we've begun to understand a lot of a lot of things like this. And so, I think historically, people just thought um, suicide was, like I said, it was categorized as a as a sin, and particularly as a mortal sin, um, and, and not as a mental illness. I mean, and so, but I think it, all of those who are experts in in the field of mental health now know that. It is it is an act that is not done by someone who is mentally sound. Like it's an act that happens when a person has really lost all hope and and is a very dark place. And so I think we give more grace now to people to understand that it it wasn't some selfish act. It was an act in the midst of utter despair and hopelessness for a person who could not see any other way. And when you, I think when you couch it in that terms and not as sort of the selfish, cowardly kind of act, but as, a, as, as an act of, of desperation, uh, I think we have a lot more sympathy and compassion for that we maybe didn't have in the past. So I'd like to think so anyway. I, I just think the grace of God is far bigger than we can even ever imagine. Well, let's talk about grief. Um, I'm sure before this experience, you were familiar with it. Um, what did this journey teach you about the unpredictable nature of grief? Uh, I mean, that's a great word to use, unpredictable. I mean, because we, we like to think we have some measure of control in our lives. We like to think that uh, if I can just do everything right, uh, nothing bad will happen. Um, but the reality is, is the death is, is woven into the, to the human experience. And it is, it is a challenging and difficult thing for humans to deal with. It's, I think it's the, the most challenging thing for, for people of faith even is when, when we as, as believers lose someone, it makes us for a moment, you know, it, it sends us into a kind of crisis. Like, what is it that we really believe? And it really shakes us to the core. Um, so, so there is that dimension of grief is, you know, how did this happen? This shouldn't have happened. In my case, you know, bearing a child, that's just unnatural. That's not how it's supposed to be. Parents shouldn't bury children. Um, but it is a part of, of human experience, a part of human life, and has been and always will be. So one dimension of grief has to do with just the shock of loss and what that means. Um, and then there's the other side of it, and that is that how, how, do we, how do we make sense of life without the person that we've lost? because that is the that is the part of it that that doesn't go away and um, one of the things that uh, in in this new edition of of room of marvels there's a new afterword that i wrote that was cued by my 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 literary agent the kathy the woman who helped get the book published in the first point but but she said to me you know now 20 years after the book um, or so you know, how has grief changed for you? What's, what's different now? And so in the new afterward, I wrote about what it's like. Uh, and I do think some things, one is that it, it does, there is healing. Like it, it, you know, people say time heals all wounds. That's not true because it, it, it isn't, it isn't a time issue. Some, some, some wounds will, will feel as fresh many years later as, as when they happened. So that's not really true, but but I think as we we grieve with hope, you know that's that First Thessalonians four 
reference where Paul says, we as Christians don't grieve as others do, we grieve with hope. And I've learned that grieving with hope over time, there is some healing. doesn't take it away. I, I still feel the pain of the losses of, of Rich Mullins and Madeline, my daughter, and my mother, and then Dallas Willard, um, who died in 2013, who was a spiritual father to me. Uh, I, I still feel the pain. I mean, I'll, I'll, somebody will send a quote of Dallas, you know, put it up on Twitter, or a Rich Mullins song will come on the radio. Uh, or on Spotify or something, and, and suddenly um, there's a, just a little wince of some of the pain. But you grieve differently when you have hope, and so I've I've learned that in the process as well. You wrote, God loves me. This was not a new thought. It was an old thought I had long ago abandoned, especially in the last year. I had lived for years believing that there was something I must do, something I must be in order to get God to like me. When bad things happening to me, I was sure that God was punishing me. You know, it's easy to open up the Bible and we can find endless verses about God's love for us. But I wonder if you might walk us through how you felt the love of God in your life in the midst of these deaths. You know, one of the things that I think of, Andy, is the uh, what theologians would call the vicarious humanity of Christ, and, and that is that, that Jesus is present to us in the midst of our pain, um, that Jesus experienced what we experience and, and is present with us. And for me, that was, that was really profound in terms of, of my own growth and healing through grief. Because coming to the awareness that, that not only did Jesus himself suffer, I mean, he did suffer abandonment and alienation and death and assault and all the things that, you know, humans rejection. He experienced that and he redeemed that on our behalf. So there's that dimension, the, the, the recapitulation of, of what 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 Jesus did for us, right, in experiencing and redeeming what, the worst that humans go through. But the other thing that was really profound for me is this, the recognition that Christ was with me, that, you know, when, when we got the news from the doctors, which was one of the worst days of my life, when the doctors informed my wife and I about Madeline's condition, what they feared the most, and that they didn't think she would live, and 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 then how I felt when when she actually died the day of her of her death to think he was with me he was with Megan my wife he was with us together um, we weren't alone God doesn't abandon us and I think that's true in every circumstances the woman who you know her husband just leaves her up and leaves her Jesus is with her um, the the rejections and the losses and the pains and the suffering. Um, he not only has experience, but he's with us when we do experience it. And I think that's what Paul meant by, by how we grieve differently. We grieve with a kind of hope. Um, and we also know how it ends. Like we, we, know, we know ultimately what this looks like on the other end. And I think that's what the book is, is, is dealing with the most. And you know, that's why the subtitle of the book is a, a story about heaven that heals the heart. It's because we know how it ends. We know ultimately... Um, that you know, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining is the sun. And when you know that, that changes that the way that you suffer and gives a kind of hope to your grief. 
So this book is an expanded edition from, um, you know, more than a decade after publication. As you were looking back at your first edition, um, what's changed for you theologically since the first time you wrote this? That's a great question, Andy. I, yeah, I had to think about that because when we did this this new edition, and I wrote uh, I wrote a study guide, two study guides actually, one for uh, just a one time book group that might want to read it and talk about it, and then a study guide for people who want to go through it, maybe groups together or individuals. But I had to kind of really go back through the book, and uh, in order to write those those guides, and it was interesting, sort of thinking. Um, looking at it then, and I, I think a lot of it's deepened. I, 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 there's nothing that I would say, well, my, I've really changed my theological position or my anthropological position or my understanding of anything really foundational, but um, it really has deepened. And you know, Dallas Willard wrote a beautiful um, foreword to the book, and just rereading that, and certainly reading that in light of you know, knowing that Dallas himself has graduated to glory back in 2013, just reading his foreword that he wrote for the original edition, um, it, it just deepened that because he writes in the foreword about about uh, you know how how powerful it is to to understand heaven in the in the light of to understand that there is this glory that awaits us and and what that does for us in terms of this life. So it's really, I guess, the short answer is really deepened. Some of the things that I only knew tacitly at the time, I kind of had a sense of now I, now they're much more real to me. Where does the church fit into all this? How does the church equip its people to face grief? That's a great question. You know, I love the church, and the church is, in Dallas Willard would often say, the church is best God, is God's best arrangement for his people, and I've, I've always been passionate about the church. And... You know, I, I, because I'm so passionate, I can be critical of the church. And I think we often don't do uh, a, a great job of it. And I think we would we would do well to be uh, more mindful of that reality. I think we, we face death when someone in our congregation dies and, and we'll, we'll address it. But really, I think it's a big part of the Christian story. It's a, what I like to call the magnificent story um, deals directly with death but also with resurrection. And so, and we sing it in our hymns, uh, in hymns like it is well with my soul, or I quoted amazing grace earlier. Um, it's a big part of, of, of our story that we sing and that we say in the creeds, we say it, you know, uh, that we believe in the resurrection. Uh, so I, I think we could do a better job maybe of, of making a, a big part of that. I mean, the cross, the empty cross is the center, certainly in most Protestant churches. Uh, I think we do well to speak of, of death and resurrection a little more than maybe we do. You know, when we think not just about equipping people for grief, but um, what have you learned are some of the best practices for churches journeying alongside people living through loss and grief? Boy, that, that's, that's a huge. You know, actually, one of the things that I did... Um, I, I did this out of frustration. I'm going to go ahead and confess this. I've never published it or anything, but I started keeping a list of stupid things Christians say when people are grieving. Um, pe people really want to be helpful when someone uh, we know is suffering a loss. They've lost their husband or their child or a friend or, so, you know, 
when people around us have loss, we want to say something. And I mean, people said so many things that were on so unhelpful <laughs> and, and they meant well, but they just, you know, people would say things like, well, God just really wanted your child up in heaven. Well, gee, you know, that makes me not like God very much that he would be so mean and selfish to take that person. And yeah. And so I, I we want to do well. Here's the thing. When, when Madeline was in the hospital, there, and she was in the hospital a lot um, in the two years of her life. But there was a time when one of my colleagues, he was a New Testament professor at the time, an older gentleman, um, and he was just this dear, you know, deep, deep in the kingdom Christian guy. But I remember he, he came to the, to the waiting room uh, on a really important day, and I, I remember seeing him, and I walked up. And I said, I, you know, I'm, I don't really have time to visit, but thank you for coming. He goes, I'm, I'm not here to visit. I'm just here for you and, you know, to be with you, to support you. And that was all he said. And I thanked him and I left and he stayed there for like six hours. You know, I, and other times I would pop out. He was just there. And he, he was, and the reason I'm telling that story is that I think there's nothing more important than, than, than presence. You know, the, and, um, and he, he said something later when I, I, t I thanked him for being there. And he just said, I just wanted you to know I was standing with you. And that, that's always stuck with me that I think we just need to know that, that people are standing with us. It's not what they say. It's, it's, it's their actions. It isn't really, you know, the flowers or the plants or the cards or balloons or whatever. It's just knowing people are standing with me. That's what you want to know. I think that's how we can do well. As you think about, you know, you probably had hopes and desires for your readers to first go around. What are your hopes and desires this, this second go around with this expanded edition? Um, you know, as I said, when I wrote the book originally, I didn't write it for anybody else. So of, of anything I've ever written, I never had a reader in mind. Um, but I've been really, it's, it's been so encouraging through the years to have people share how the book has really helped them a great deal. Uh, and of all the books I've written, I don't think I've written any book where I've, I have more people tell me that they buy multiple copies to give to friends and keep them on hand for, for others. Who so so the, it, it's had a wonderful ministry uh, in its life thus far. But with, with InterVarsity Press publishing it now, um, I think it gives it kind of a, a new audience, a, a way to reach some people. And thanks to you, Andy, and, and this interview, just making people aware that wouldn't otherwise have been aware. And certainly within the pandemic, um, I, I don't know, I, I think by the time we're through this, I don't think there'll be hardly anybody that doesn't have a connection to someone who passed too soon, who, um, you know, it really wasn't their time, as they say, were it not for this, this, uh, this virus. And so I think in the midst of, of this incredible grief and loss that we've been experiencing now. I think it's a, it's kind of timely that the book has has resurfaced in this new, in this new form for now. So I, that's that would be a hope for me that people who know someone or have lost someone in this season uh, may find some hope and healing from the book now. So you're on social media, but if other people want to connect with you in different ways, what's the best way to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you, I can be reached at, at theapprenticeinstitute.org, and at the Apprentice Institute, that's all one word. Um, you can find all kinds of resources, our, our, uh, the Apprentice Gathering, our annual conference, and the, the podcast called Things Above. Um, that might be of some help to some uh, folks who are listening today to check out the podcast. They're, they're short, uh, typically devotional in nature podcasts where I try to help people set their minds on things above. So the Things Above podcast is on iTunes or Spotify, where other people would would, would get their podcasts. And um, yeah, I think th- that, that would be just helpful. I also interview people on the podcast. So I, I've had some fantastic guests that have just been uh, uh, so encouraging and helpful. So I'd, I'd encourage folks to check out the Things Above podcast. And, um, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And so you can, you can find me there as well. We'll go out and purchase Room of Marvels by James Brian Smith, wherever books are sold. Jim, thank you for allowing um, the story uh, and experience of your pain and suffering be a, a theological catalyst for creating a stronger capacity within us to face grief and loss. Well, thanks for saying that, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for this time. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.